If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be over in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Or you can follow along in the YouVersion app. And, uh, you know, we find ourselves this morning in a uh, new place in the book of Exodus. You know, last week we talked about such a pivotal moment in the history of you know, of the world, of scripture, and, uh, you know, the, the exodus, God's people finally leaving the hands of the Egyptians in, in such a powerful way, right, when they, it seemed like they're, you know, they're trapped, and yet God in this powerful display, he parts the Red Sea and enables them to walk across the water on dry land, and as soon as they cross, God closes those waters over the Egyptians and they see what God has done. They see this powerful display and everything that has happened. And it said that they feared the Lord. And now we find ourselves in a new place. But we know that new is not always easy, right? And, you know, for these Israelites, this wasn't the end of something. This was just the end of a chapter in a much larger narrative. This was God saying, okay, I'm going to bring them out of the hands of Egypt, but then I'm going to lead them to the promised land. And new doesn't always mean easy. But, I mean, they've seen God do amazing things. And so, really, it should be a piece of cake, shouldn't it? Because they know that whatever happens, God has already done so much. He has shown them through his mighty hand, plague after plague after plague after plague. And he has also, you know, parted the Red Sea and they crossed on dry ground and he closed the waters. I mean, everything from here, it should just be, okay, God, we know that you're going to guide and lead and everything that happens is, God, we know that you're going to be leading. But we know that new is not always easy. And we know that sometimes in our human condition, our human nature, we tend to, just like the Israelites, forget. We forget so often what God has done for us. We forget powerful displays. We forget, you know, uh, God doing amazing things. Uh, we, we sometimes forget, and here this morning we find ourselves in a new place, and we find ourselves with the same old Israelites. They're struggling. This new condition, their anxieties, their worries, their stress about what's going to happen, what's, how, is, how are they going to have everything they need, what's going to take place now that they're not in Egypt. And these chapters that we're going to look at this morning, it's a an example of what it means to actually really trust God. They're going to have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to trust God. And they react in a lot of ways the same way that we do. And I think what we're going to look at this morning leads us to ask ourselves a few questions when it comes to trust. And so we're going to pick up and we're going to uh, see where they're at now. And so we're going to be in chapter 15 and verse 22. And in 15 verse 22, it says this. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? 
Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought to the Egyptians, brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. And so here we find ourselves this morning picking up from where we were last week. They've now traveled from the Red Sea to the desert of Shur. And I think there's a map on one of the next slides. There you go. It's kind of the pathway that we're going to see them travel. And they end up in the desert of Shur, and they spend three days looking for water. And then they finally find water, and the water is bitter. No, no, they're out looking for water, looking for water, and they finally find water, and they're like, oh, yes, glorious, glorious water, and it's bitter, and they can't drink it. And so we think that they would say, okay, you know what, God, you are in the business of doing amazing things and, and helping us when we need help, and so, God, we can't drink this water, it's, it's bitter, but God, we know that you can do something amazing, and we know that you can fix this, and you can help us. God, help us. That's what we think they would say, right? But nope, instead, they grumble. And to grumble, it, the definition of that means to mutter in discontent. They're not content. They're not happy with the situation they find themselves in. And so what do they do? They grumble to Moses. They're not happy. And of course, this is all Moses' fault, is it not? I mean, they were better where they were. And this is Moses, this is all on you. Everything that's happened to Moses, this is your fault. Like Moses knows all the good watering holes in the area, right? And Moses cries out to God, and God tells him to take this piece of wood and throw this wood in the water, and it'll become drinkable. And that's exactly what happens. It becomes drinkable, and this gives God an opportunity. And he gives the people a ruling, an instruction, and he puts them to the test, and he tells them plainly, he said, listen, be careful to do what I tell you. Do what is right in my eyes. Follow my commands. Keep my decrees. Do what I ask you to do, and you're going to be good. Don't do what I tell you, and really, I could bring upon you the plagues that I brought on the Egyptians. But if you do what I tell you to do, if you follow my decrees and my commands, you'll be okay. I mean, he had done it to them before. He could do it again. Deuteronomy 7.15, it tells us, The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. Deuteronomy 28, 58 through 60 says, If you do not carefully follow all the words of the law, which are written in this book, and do not revere this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, the Lord will send fearful plagues on you and your descendants, harsh and prolonged disasters and severe and lingering illnesses. He will bring on you all the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded, and they will cling to you. So if God wants to, he could easily bring upon all of these Israelites the exact same things that he brought on the Egyptians. But if they choose to listen and obey and follow his commands, they will be in a good place. And so now, continuing over to chapter 16. And this is what it says in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. It says, The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, 
which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the foods we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So we see they travel now out of Elam and they're uh, in the desert of sin, and they are hungry. And so they lift up their voices and say, God, we are so hungry. Please give us something to eat, God. You are good. You have proven time and time again. You just gave us clean water when it was bitter. God, we trust you. Please provide for us. No. You think that's what they would say, but that's not what they say. Instead, again, they start grumbling and complaining. A matter of fact, they go so far as to say, God should have just killed us in Egypt. At least in Egypt, we had pots of meat. We had food. Man, if God was going to do this to us, he should have just killed us in Egypt. Yeah, but no, now we're going to starve to death here. Thanks a lot. Then verse 4. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And the way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are prepare what they bring in. They are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight, you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And so we see what God's plan is going to be. He is going to provide for them bread and meat that comes from heaven. In the morning and the evening, they will receive bread, and they will receive well and God is going to test the people to see if they listen and pay attention and actually follow and obey his instructions but before Moses and Aaron tell the people what's going to happen Moses brings up a very solid point here not only are they grumbling about what is happening currently they're grumbling against God they may think Moses this is directed at you Aaron this is directed at you but these are messengers these are servants of God this has nothing to do with Moses and Aaron no all the grumbling that's happening all the stuff that's being said this is against God this is against God and so they are grumbling against God and God is and they're telling him hey you're forgetting this. You're not grumbling against us. You're grumbling against God. And, you know, Philippians 2, 14 and 15, it tells us, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. If we're told not to grumble or argue, that would especially mean that we don't do this against God. 
And that's what they're doing. They are grumbling against God. And then we go on in verse 13. It says, Then evening, or that evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He then said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a Sabbath day, or a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever, whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will, be, or there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Okay, so we see a lot here, but it's kind of this instruction. This is what you are to do. And we see right here, God is going to provide them with two very big things. The first one is quail. Quail. This is a response to verse 3 where it says, They had meat in Egypt. You want meat? So I'm going to give you meat. In the evening, you are going to get quail. You know, this will end up being a big staple, a big part of their, uh, you know, one of their big parts of their meals. In Psalm 78, 27 through 28, it says, He rained meat down on them like dust, birds like sand on the seashore. He made them come down inside their camp all around their tents. Psalm 105, 40 says, They asked and he brought them quail. He fed them well with the bread of heaven. And that leads us to the next one, this bread of heaven, manna. You may be wondering, what is it? What is manna? And it's you know, correct that you would ask because the Hebrew word for manna is, what is it? Literally, the Hebrew word for manna, what is it? And we ask the same question. When I was a kid, I would look at pictures that people thought manna looked like, and I always thought it looked like angel food cake growing up. Spongy, it would be like angel food cake. As I grew up, I started to think it's whatever bread that Chick-fil-A uses. Um, that's why they're so successful because every morning they come in and they're, you know, they gather up their uh, omer of manna and it lasts all day. Um, but the text doesn't really make it appear like that's actually the case. Uh, so what is manna? Well, Scripture kind of tells us in verse 14 it says it was thin flakes. Verse 31, it tells us that it was like uh, coriander seeds. In 
uh, Numbers 11.7, it says the manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin, so it looked kind of like a, a resiny texture. Uh, it tells us in verse 31 that it tasted like honey wafers, uh, but also in Numbers 11.8, it says the people went around gathering it and they ground it into a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar and they cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves and it tasted like something made with olive oil. So whatever you think that may taste like or look like, um, yeah, what is it? We, we don't know. Um, and they didn't know either. Uh, but it was there. It was there. And God gave the people instructions. And here's what you're supposed to do with this manna. Everyone is to use a measure of omer, which would be two quarts, for each person in their tents to have what they need. And when I say to have what they need, I mean they would have to get what they need because they were told not to keep any of it overnight. They were to trust that God would provide each and every day exactly what it was they needed. No more, no less. Each and every day, God was going to provide what they needed so they didn't need to go and take a whole bunch of it in the evening for the next day because God was going to provide it for them. But of course, there are those that say, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and take extra. And they decide not to listen, and what happens? It ends up becoming filled with maggots and starts to smell. And Moses gets angry at this. Of course he would. I told you what to do, and you choose not to listen. And so they were told that the only time they needed to save extra was on the sixth day. The reason for this is uh, the seventh day was the Sabbath day, and so on the Sabbath day, there isn't going to be any. I'm not going to provide. You could go out, and there won't be any out there. So what you need to do is on the sixth day, you need to get extra for that Sabbath day so that you will be good. And that's what he tells them to do. That's your answer. Every single day, except the Sabbath day, I'm going to provide for you everything that you need. All you have to do is listen and obey. And twice in these things, people don't listen. On the first day, they gather too much, and it's filled with maggots and all of that. And then what happens again? They go out on the seventh day and find nothing. They choose not to listen. And God is going to provide. All they have to do is listen. And, and this leads us to the first question that I want us to ask ourselves today. And it's this, will we trust and obey? Will we trust and obey? One of the biggest problems that the Israelites seemed to have was trusting and obeying. And these two things go hand in hand. They said they feared him, but over and over and over and over again, they grumble and complain instead of listening and doing what God has told them to do. These two things go together, trusting God and obeying him. You can't say that I trust God, but then say I'm not going to listen to anything he has to say. If we say, God, I'm going to trust you, then that means we have to obey what he tells us to do. We have to obey his word. We have to obey his commands, his decrees, his laws. We have to do what it is he tells us to do. It's not just to trust, it's to obey. Because if we're going to say, God, I trust you, then that means doing what he actually tells us to do following his commands, doing what his word says. This is how we know that we're actually followers, right? Like it says in 1 John 5, 2 through 3, this is how we know that we 
love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. We are told to trust and obey, to do what God tells us to do. L. Tom Perry says it like this, obedience is a choice. It is a choice between our own limited knowledge and power and God's unlimited wisdom and omnipotence. We get to choose. Are we going to trust and obey? Or are we going to ignore what he says? And the truth is this. If we decide to obey, our lives are often better when we choose to obey. When we choose to do what God tells us to do, when we follow his commands, it's as if God knows what's best for us. Crazy, right? Scripture tells us that we're blessed in the things that matter when we actually do what he says. Psalm 128.1, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. James 1.25, But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Not only are lives better, we are blessed in the things that matter when we obey, when we trust and obey. And so that's the first question that I would want us to ask. Are we willing to trust and obey to actually do what he tells us to do? Well, we continue on with our Israelites in chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. It says this, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And so here we go. We see them continuing to wonder, going from place to place as God has directed them, and they end up in Rephidim, and they see that there is no water. And already God has given them drinking water in our text this morning. And so they say, all right, God, give us water. We need water. We can't find water. We're, we're thirsty. Please just give us some water. Right? That's what they say. Nope. Nope. What do they do? Again, they start quarreling with Moses and say to him, give us water. Moses, this is on you. This is your fault. Give us water. Again, Moses knows all the best places around here to get water, doesn't he? Like, not like he's been, you know, dealing with other stuff for a while, but no, he, it's his responsibility. And they ask Moses, why did you bring us out here to die from thirst? And Moses, he finally gets to a point where he cries out, God, what am I supposed to do here? They're, they're getting ready to, to stone me. They are getting to the point where they want to kill me now. Like, what am I supposed to do with these people? And so he tells Moses to go in front of the people, go ahead of the people with some of the elders and strike a rock. 
be standing by and water will gush from it. You notice something there? God tells him, go in front of the people, take some of the elders, and I want you to do this there. He's done a lot of miracles in front of his people, the Israelites. It almost seems like here, where we're at, the people are starting to lose the right and the privilege to witness God do miracles in front of them. Over and over and over again, they're grumbling, complaining, arguing, get mad, upset about everything that's happening. And so he tells them to go ahead. And you know what? Moses goes and he sees the Lord's hand on his rock and he does exactly what he's told to do and water sprung forth. Now some people try to argue that this was really just a piece of limestone covering a vein of water. Nothing special. This limestone would have broke real easy, but actually when you do research into the area, most of the rocks in that area were granite, not limestone. No, this is a, another spiritual, like, this is another miracle, another powerful display from God. But there's two things here that I want us to focus on for just a minute. Moses asked the question, why do you test God? Why are you testing God? It's interesting, it's almost like the opposite. God was testing them to see if they would obey, and now these people are starting to test God. God, are you going to actually prove yourself? Matter of fact, they name the places, or they name the place that they're at, uh, Massah and Meribah, because it's here that the people quarrel and test God, saying, is the Lord with us or not? After everything that has happened, after every powerful display, after every miracle, after the plagues, after the Red Sea, after every single thing that has taken place, they ask the question, is the Lord with us or not? It doesn't make any sense. But it does make sense. Because that leads me to our next question that I want us to ask this morning. Will we trust God or will we test him? Will we trust God or will we test him? Here's the thing. The only time in scripture where we are seen that, or where it is seen that we are told to test God, it comes in Malachi chapter 3 verse 10. And this is in relation to offerings and tithes. And the Hebrew word that's used in that section is bakan. Bakan. And this word, it means to examine, scrutinize, or prove, as in gold or persons or the heart. And God is saying, I want you to test me in this area to see that if, I, if you give, as you give as you're supposed to, that I will not bless you, that I will not open the storehouse and, and bless you all. He wants them to test his faithfulness in that era or area. But here's the thing, there's another Hebrew word for test, and that word is nakah. And this word means to put to the test, try, or tempt. And the place we see this word used is in Deuteronomy 6, 16. And it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Same place as our text this morning. And if you recall, Jesus said something similar to Satan, did he not? Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift, up, or lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And, and here's the thing about testing God. I think it's rooted in a lack of faith and a, a lot of doubt. 
And the Israelites saw miraculous thing after miraculous thing, and they still lacked faith through every tough situation that they've gone through where they should have trusted God. They doubt that God is actually going to provide for them, that God is going to care for their needs, that God is going to give them everything that they need. This type of testing, it's unacceptable before God. And yet, how often do we do this? If you're a good God, then do this or that. Prove yourself, God. Are you even present, God, in my life if, if you don't meet my needs the way that I think you should meet my needs? God, I think you should meet my needs this way. I think you should do this. I think you should do that. If you're truly God, if you're truly great, if you're truly loving, if you're truly fill in the blank, then you will do this. And we are trying to test God. God, are you really who you say you are? Yeah, we can't put God to the test. We shouldn't put God to the test. And so that we need to ask ourselves the question, are we willing to trust him or are we going to test him? But this isn't the only provision we see in this chapter. Over in verse 8, it says this, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held, uh, or held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with his sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And so, kind of ironic, isn't it? We're, we're talking here about God providing them water, and next thing we know, the Amalekites come and start attacking the Israelites. You remember when I said, new isn't always easy, and they just come out of the hands of Egypt, and now all of a sudden, they're in battle. They're randomly attacked, and the question, what do we know about these people, the Amalekites? They were nomads in the desert of or south of Canaan. They were descendants of Esau through Elisha. In Genesis 36:12, Esau's son, Elisha, also had a concubine named Timnah who bore him Amalek. These were grandsons of Esau's wife, Adah. And so we see here that Moses turns to a man named Joshua. And Joshua, as we know, is going to play a very important part in Scripture to come. And he tells him to choose some men to lead and go, against, or go to war against the people. But they're also going to need help, and they're going to need help that can only come from God. And so Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of a hill, and as long as Moses held up his hands with the staff, the Israelites would be winning. But if he lowered his hands, they would start losing. And as you can imagine, if you're out there holding your, I don't know if you hold the staff like that, if you, it depends on which version of the movies you watch about Moses, uh, whether 
he held his staff up like this or with one hand. Or it sounds likely it was like this. And every time he would hold it up, they would be winning. When he dropped it, they'd be losing. And of course, you can imagine your arm would start to hurt. Both your arms would start to hurt after a while. And so they give him a stone to sit on and we see Aaron and her come over and they help hold his arms up so that when he started to get tired, when his arms started to feel like dropping, when there was no more that he could do, when his arms were so tired that they were going to fall, they had his back. They rallied around him and they were right there helping together make sure that everything was supposed to go as it was supposed to go. And they do this until sunset and Joshua overcame the Amalekites with his sword. And God then tells Moses, write this down and make sure that Joshua knows this because these uh, Amalek and the Amalekites, they're going to be a thorn in the side of the Israelites for quite a while. It won't be until King David finally destroys them in 1 Samuel 30 that they're gone. But he wants Joshua to know about this moment. Remember this. And know what I am going to do to these people in the future. You're going to have to deal with them. And I want you to remember this moment. And this leads us to the third question this morning that I want us to ask ourselves. And it's this. Will we trust God in the battle? Will we trust God in the battle? When things are going crazy and we are in the midst of a battle, will we trust him? And the truth is exactly this, right? Our life is filled with battles, and sometimes those battles feel small, and sometimes those battles feel like they're war. Will we trust him? You see, the enemy is not going to let up on us. The enemy is not going to just say, okay, you follow Christ, I'm out. No, no. He's going to go after us with every single thing that he has over and over and over again, attacking us at every opportunity. Are we going to trust him in the midst of the battle? You see, Scripture reminds us that in the midst of battle, we can find protection and preservation in only him. Psalm 138.7, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand, you save me. But I think the thing is, in the midst of our difficult battles, in the midst of our wars, we get scared. We get anxious. What happens when we get scared, when we get anxious in our lives? We start to forget what God has done. We forget his faithfulness. We forget his protection. We start trying to fight the battles of life on our own. We start to think that we can do everything on our own, that we don't need him or, or if God hasn't answered things the way we expected him to. We start thinking, okay, I guess this is all on me. And we start to try to fight the battles in our lives on our own. We can't do that. I love how James Smith puts it, and he puts it like this. He says, battles as well as blessings mark the course of a believer's pilgrimage. Sometimes the Lord fights for his people, is that the Red Sea? And sometimes through his people. In any case, believers can be confident that he who is in their midst is greater than any enemy which may be encountered in the way. Battles are going to come. Wars in our lives are going to come. The enemy is going to attack. But we need to remember what it says in Proverbs 21, 30 and 31. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. No matter what we are going through, he is with us. He fights for us. He fights against our enemy. He is there. But will we trust him in the battle? We're going to skip over now to chapter 18, 18 verse 13. And this is what it says. 
says, The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what, are you, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way you are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make, you, or that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands you, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times, the difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. And so here... We skip ahead a little bit, and we see that Moses is serving as a judge for his people. And from morning to evening, they stand around and wait for him, waiting for him to hear their disputes and help make a decision on what they're to do. And Jethro sees this, and he asks, what is, what is this you're doing? And Jethro, he appears at the beginning of chapter 18. He hears everything that has happened with Egypt, the plagues, the exodus, the Red Sea, everything, and sends a message to Moses that he's coming and he's bringing along Moses' wife and kids along with him. And so he asks, what is this that you're doing? And Moses' response is that people are trying to seek God's will and they'll bring disputes to me and I'll decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instruction. And then Jethro points out something to him. This is a problem. You're putting yourself in the position of judge and you're trying to take on this giant burden all by yourself. You have people waiting all day to hear uh, you give, a de- or give your opinion and, and what the God, our Lord's decrees is on this. This is a hard position to be in. This is a burden. You're taking all of this on yourself. And Jethro, he's, act- he's absolutely right in everything he tells him. This is a burden on yourself. You're going to wear yourself thin. You're going to wear yourself out. This is a true thing in life, is it not? I can speak to you from a ministry point of view and say that the number one cause of ministry burnout and the number one reason why so many people leave the ministry is because of this feeling like they have to do everything on their own. Or they carry the burdens of everything on their shoulders on their own. But this is true not just in ministry, in life, is it not? When we try to carry the burdens of everything on our shoulders all the time, and it it burns us out, it wears us out when we think that we have to do everything and we're the only ones that can do everything. And so he tells him, you can't do this. And so he gives him some advice. 
and I love his advice. He tells him, here's what you need to do. First, you need to uh, be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Everything, all these disputes, your job is to take them to the Lord, to bring those things before God. Here's the second thing you need to do. Teach them all the decrees and instructions of the Lord and help them understand how they are to live and behave. Get to the the root first. Here's how you should live. Here's how you should behave. These are the things that you need to do. You do these things, you won't have to deal with so much because you're doing what God has asked you to do. You're not going to quarrel. You're not going to argue. You're going to handle things the way God tells you to handle things. But then here's the third thing you need to do. Select men who select men who have these very key characteristics. Number one, they fear God. They are trustworthy and they hate dishonest gain. They fear God, they're trustworthy, and they hate dishonest gain. And appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, and they will judge the disputes. Find capable men who are God-fearing, trustworthy men who are not just out for themselves, who are not out for dishonest gain. And then fourthly, what you need to do is all the most difficult cases will be brought to you and the light cases will be handled by them. You don't need to hear every single case. If there's a very difficult case and they don't know what to do, then they can bring those to you. But all these little cases that you're hearing, let them take it. All of these things are going to help you lighten your load. It's going to take away some of the strain that was on you, or that's on you. And what does Moses do? He does exactly as his father-in-law advised. He puts this judicial system together. And so here's the fourth question I want us to ask ourselves this morning. Will we trust the counsel that God puts around us? Will we trust the counsel that God puts around us? around us. One of the greatest things that God blesses us with is other believers that we can turn to and seek counsel and advice from. It's such a great gift that God has given us in the church that we can go before our brothers and sisters and we can ask them for help and we can ask them for advice and we can lean on one another. Scripture tells us this is important. Over and over and over again, Scripture tells us this is important. Proverbs 11.14 says, For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Proverbs 15.22, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Proverbs 19.20 and 21, Listen to the advice and accept discipline, and at the end you will be counted among the wise. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And here's where I think pride comes in. Right? So often we think that we know better for ourselves than anybody else, and so I shouldn't have to ask any other people for advice or help. I know myself. I know what I need to do. And so instead of seeking counsel or advice, I'm just going to try to do everything myself. I'm going to try to figure out everything on my own. And I'm just going to try to get by. And that's not what we're called to. We're called to seek out counsel, to trust the counsel that God has put around us. Man, and I get it, though. I I mean, I get it. There's been times in in my life I've tried to figure out, oh man, what am I going to do about this? How am I going to handle this? Or how am I going to fix this? I've been too prideful or too stubborn to say, okay, I'm going to go seek out help with this or I'm going to go seek advice on this. And I tried to do everything on my own and guess what? I just made things worse. Trying to figure out how to do everything on my own and I've learned the best thing I can do is seek out the advice and counsel of others and I am blessed to be where I am because I have several people here whom I can turn to when I need counsel and advice. 
I'm thankful for our eldership here whom I get to go to anytime I have a question or I'm wondering or I'm struggling about something. Can you please help me? Can you please pray with me over this? And <laughs> I'm thankful for, I'm going to mention names, I hope I'm not embarrassing one, but like I'm thankful for Kathy who when I need a reminder, hey, you need to take a day off. She'll, I'll post something on Facebook. Hey, I'm in the office working on this, listening to this. I'll get a text from her. Hey, what are you doing in the office? It's your day off. I appreciate that. I remember, I can't, rem- I can't remember exactly when it was, but I remember we were setting up for a funeral dinner sometime. I'm putting tablecloths on the table. I just, you know my heart. I love to serve. I always want to serve. Anything that I can do to help, I want to do. I love to serve. And I remember talking to two ladies that were there helping set up tablecloths. It was Peggy and Shelly. And they told me, like, man, I, I love that you want to serve, and I, I love your desire to serve, but sometimes you need to step back and let other people help with this, or you need to let other people take this and let them do it. You might be taking an opportunity away from them. And so, exactly, I started to think, what opportunities can I take away from people when I'm trying to do everything? Man, We are blessed to have godly counsel around us. But I want to give a caution. I want to give a caution and a warning, and it would be this. Be careful from who you take advice. Be careful on whom you seek counsel from, because not every person around you may be who God has put you with to seek that counsel. And you might be thinking, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm supposed to get counsel or advice from these people? How do I know who you put in my life? And I think... The text answers that for us. We look for God-fearing, trustworthy people who are not out for themselves, who's not out to just get something from you, but they're God-fearing. They fear the Lord, they trust in Him, they know His Word, and they want to do what is right. Those are the people that we seek out. Those are the people that we look for counsel. Those are the people whom we go to for advice. You know why we do that? Because Psalm 37, 30 and 31, the godly offer good counsel. They teach right from wrong. They have made God's law their own, so they will never slip from his path. That's why we go to the godly, those who fear the Lord, who trust in him, who teach his word, because they offer good counsel. They teach right from wrong. And so are we willing to do that? Are we willing to trust the counsel that God has put around us? Or are we going to try to do everything on our own? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this morning. And as they do, at the end of the day, we know that we can put our trust in God. We know that we can. Not only can we look at the story of the Israelites, we have the whole of the Bible, right? Like we have the whole scripture. We can read from cover to cover and we can see event and moment after moment after moment of how God took care of his people, provided for his people, comforted his people, helped his people over and over and over again. We can trust in him. Not just because of what he provides, but because of who he is. We can trust him because of who he is. He is all wise. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is gracious. He is merciful. A loving God who knows what is best for us. He has done good and wonderful things in our lives and the lives of those around us. Psalm 100, verse 5, it tells us, For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Isaiah 25, 1, Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You and praise Your name. 
for in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. He has done good, amazing, wonderful things. And we can see all of the things he's done. We can look through scripture and see all the things he's done. But what greater thing that he's done for us than to send his, his son Jesus? The only way to be saved is through his son Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection. We can put our trust in a God who is trustworthy. And so will we trust him? Will you trust him? Will you trust him with your life this morning? If you've never given your life to him, you can. On your Connect card, you can uh, write it down. I'd love to talk with you. Or you want to talk with me this morning, I'd love to talk with you. Or maybe you find yourself here this morning and the things of this world has caused you to put so much trust in yourself rather than God. You're finding it difficult to, to trust in, in Him and obey Him. You're finding it difficult to trust Him and you find yourself testing Him or you find yourself in the battles struggling to trust Him or just in general you find your trust waning. You're starting to feel like you just can't trust anymore. Well, maybe this morning what you need to do is you need to take all of those things and you just need to lay them down at his feet. Put your trust in him. Obey his word. Trust him in the battle. Trust him when things are going on. Trust the people that God has put around you who are God-fearing, trustworthy people. Maybe this morning what you need to do is spend time in prayer. Just giving those things to him. Right where you're sitting, you can do that. If you want to come pray with me, I'd love to pray with you. But this morning, we serve a God who is trustworthy. We serve a God who it is worth putting all of our trust, our hope, our faith in. And so this morning, if you're here and you have a decision to make, I pray that you would do so as we stand and we sing this morning.